0: Hey everybody, Laszlo Montgomery, still no intro music, and from the responses I got from the inquiry I made last episode into how all you y'alls thought about it, it's looking like there will be no melodic tones forthcoming, at least in the near term. This is the second podcast in a row where the scheduled topic was preempted by a sudden inspiration from one of you, my listeners, to do something else. That happened last time with William Mesney and now again with this silky smooth topic. Remember 40 episodes ago, I did this 10-part series where I discussed the history of tea from Shannong to the Qing Dynasty. Well, today's subject, the history of silk, is a story that I instructed my loyal interns to condense down to a single episode. You know, me. If I could find some way to drag this one out, eight or ten episodes, I'm more than happy to do so. But I think we could get this one told in the usual 45 to 55 minute window that these CHP episodes invariably come in at. When I came to that point where I exhausted everything there was to know about this subject that was worthwhile to tell, I couldn't help thinking... The whole story of Silk really had a lot of similarities with what I mentioned in the history of tea. As the narrative unfurls, I'll wander off on my usual sidebars and show where Silk and Tea shared a similar story or history. I can't guarantee I'll return back to whatever the main point was that I was making, but we'll get to where we're going by hook or by crook. China is a world export powerhouse, gave me a livelihood for 30 years. Didn't start with the Deng Xiaoping reforms in the 1980s. That national network of designers, artisans, engineers, scientists, merchants, and laborers went way back to the earliest days in Chinese history when a sufficiently large enough economy existed to support all these combined talents all kinds of manufactured goods of chinese design and from designs brought to china for reproduction have been exported to the west since the ming dynasty when ships from china and europe sailed back and forth between their respective homelands in china trade with other asian countries that's been going on since even before the tang it was all kinds of stuff that china had that the world's traders were happy to go to the trouble to get and Bring back to wherever they had set sail from. But besides silk tea and porcelain, we almost have to stop and think, what else was there? Garments, textiles, salt, bullion, and whatnot. But everything else combined, all those other raw materials, manufactures, semi-finished goods that China exported, nothing touched the kind of volume of those big three. Silk tea, porcelain. Long before you could fit the world in the palm of your hand, there was nothing that evoked the whole idea of China. Cathay, like those three products. In the consciousness of the common everyday people, to the masses, these three things were China's primary calling cards, no matter whether you were rich, poor, or somewhere in between. This has held true for as long as... People from other lands began coming to China in great numbers, since at least the Western Han dynasty. Such wondrous products they were, too. Silk tea porcelain, the magnificence of those three products alone, gave face and prestige to China that was universal among users of these three manufactured products. Everyone in the world, going back to the beginning of the common era, and even before then, everyone who was aware of these three commodities knew these wonders of mankind came from China, or whatever in their day they called that exotic and mysterious place. To be able to claim that they were first to market with something as important to mankind as tea is already an incredible achievement. In China's case... They not only had bragging rights to being the first to cultivate tea, they were also the first to figure out how to cultivate silk and how to create durable but eggshell-thin, translucent porcelain that was so exquisite that only a son of heaven himself was good enough to sip from it. Dang, no one could take that away from China. Silk, tea, porcelain. Talk about global soft power. These three products were the primary link between China and the Western world. They were the whole reason for the Silk Road. In the case of tea, a war would even be fought over it. And you remember from that history of tea series, there was more to the whole tea-making process than simply picking leaves from a tea bush and steeping them in a teapot. It was slightly more complicated. Porcelain, too. I mentioned in one of those episodes that Europeans had been ogling over Chinese-made porcelain since the day they first laid their hands on it. And it took Europeans, fresh out of the Renaissance with all those brilliant minds and new learning, until Bertiger in 1709 to figure out how to make porcelain the way the Chinese did it. Tea, the British East India Company, by the 19th century still hadn't figured out how to turn tea leaves into a beverage the way the Chinese could. They had to send Robert Fortune to China in 1846 to go dress up like a Chinese Mandarin and sneak into the tea-producing regions of Anhui and Fujian to steal seeds, plant cuttings, know-how, and a few consultants. Then he brought all this back to the company's experimental farms up in the hills of northern India and With all the secrets he had surreptitiously secreted away from China, he helped kickstart the whole tea industry in northern India. The secrets of how to make tea and porcelain. The Chinese managed to hang on to those secrets from antiquity all the way into the modern age. But silk? That secret didn't last long. It wasn't as difficult to figure out as tea and porcelain was. Tea took thousands of years to evolve from its crudest state to the point of the tributees of the Song Dynasty. But Silk? Once someone tipped you off about where Silk came from, and you were told exactly what kind of moth laid the eggs that made the worms you needed, and that they only ate one kind of leaf, and once you saw how Mother Nature did her thing and observed everything very closely, you could get the main idea pretty quick. And once you knew the basics... All you had to do was simply apply your current spinning and weaving technologies to this new material. It wasn't easy, but it wasn't rocket science either. Historically, what gold was to metal, silk was to fabric. Still rings true. Just because it was easy how to figure out to produce, didn't mean it became a cheap commodity. As we'll see, as readily available fabrics go anywhere in the world, quality top-grade silk is rarely found hanging on the markdown racks at TJ Maxx. Of silk, tea, porcelain, silk came first. Yeah, just like opium, somehow the way that everything unfolded in the development of civilization, those two things were one of the earliest gifts humankind managed to stumble into. Being an organic material and all, silk doesn't have the staying power that stone and metal do, so it's hard to find silk relics and the kind of volume of those two materials. But under the right conditions, silk can last for millennia, buried deep underground. And the proof that silk existed on this planet was found as far back as 5,000 years ago, the time of Yangshao culture in China, I sometimes get Yangshao culture in Yangshuo County mixed up. Yangshuo is the place where those gorgeous, karst peaks of Guilin are located. Yangshao culture, Yangshao wenhua, lasted from 5,000 to 3,000 BCE, roughly speaking. It was discovered and first excavated by archaeologists in the town of Yangshao, just northeast of Zhengzhou in Henan on the Yellow River. In 1984, you know how it goes, someone was digging somewhere. It always happens that way. This was in a village called Qingtai, the northwest corner of Zhengzhou on the south bank of the Yellow River. One of the things they unearthed was a coffin for a child. And the shroud used to wrap the body was made from silk. This was dated to about 3630 BCE. This... Whole region surrounding that location in China, was ground zero as far as core hua Xia Han Chinese civilization goes. So by any accounts, this was a long time ago. That time was contemporary with ancient Sumer, pre-dynasty Egypt, Jericho, one of the oldest cities in the world, was the crossroads of the East back then. In Xia County, in Shanxi Province. In 1926, a silk cocoon was found inside a tomb that was cut in half. It was dated from between 4,000 to 3,000 BCE. A half-centimeter piece of ribbon was found in another tomb from 4,700 years ago, unearthed in Qin at the south end of Lake Tai, uh, near Huzhou. And in the tombs of Shang Dynasty kings and nobles, they were already adorning themselves with silk, The shang lasted from 1600 to 1046 BCE, so silk has been around since long before recorded Chinese history. Like tea, however, silk during the shang was not nearly as exquisite and refined as it would later get. In some antiquarian book from 1845 I dug up on the history of silk and other textiles, it said, The lawful wife of Emperor Huang Di, named Xi Ling Shi, began the culture of silk. It was at that time that the emperor, Huang Di, invented the art of making garments. This great prince, Huang Di, was desirous that Xi Ling Shi, his legitimate wife, should contribute to the happiness of his people. He charged her to examine the silkworms and to test the practicability of using the thread. Ling Shi had a large quantity of these insects collected, which she fed herself, in a place prepared for that purpose, and discovered not only the means of raising them, but also the manner of reeling the silk, and employing it to make garments. It is through gratitude for so great a benefit, that posterity has deified Ling Shi, and rendered her particular honors under the name of the goddess of silkworms." End quote. The Shandong Tea legend and the silk legend of Xi Ling Shu have a lot in common. In fact, as Mr Paul French says on his website, quoting Mark Twain, they rhyme. You remember Shandong, there were a number of legends attributed to him that all ended with the words uh, and that's how tea was discovered. The DNA of that story says tea leaves fell into his boiling water and that's how he figured tea out. With Xi Ling and the story of how silk was discovered, same thing. A cocoon fell in her hot cup of tea, and she noticed the filaments unfurling. Xiling Shi is probably better known in Chinese myths and legends as Lei Zhu. And as far as her title of goddess of silkworms, she's also called Tan Nai Nai. A Tan is a silkworm. So, Lei Zhu and the Yellow Emperor, they were a couple. The Yellow Emperor, discussed a long time ago in that Three Sovereigns and Five Emperors episode, CHP 60, he lived roughly 2700 to 2600 BCE, contemporary with Joseph from the Bible during his years in Egypt. According to no less a source than Confucius himself, Lezu, discovered the Silk Secret in 2640 BCE. This is post Yangshao culture, but not by much. So the timing of the legend, and what archaeologists have been able to discover, isn't off by that much. The number thrown around most sources I read was 2700 BCE. As to the beginnings of sericulture. Sericulture, the cultivation of silkworms for producing silk. Sericum is Latin for silk. Seracos in the Greek. The legend has it that Leizu was sitting under a mulberry tree, and a cocoon somehow broke free from its scaffold and fell right into her teacup. She plucked it out and immediately noticed how the loose end, when she began to unravel it, just kept going and going and going until it reached from one end of her nice-sized garden and back again. She carefully inspected the tree she had been sitting under and noticed it was filled with these white cocoons. She spent a lot of time observing everything and figured out these worms spinning these cocoons loved eating mulberry leaves. So she went to her husband, and the Yellow Emperor arranged for a whole grove of mulberry trees to be planted. And Before long, she domesticated all the worms, and then for an encore, she designed the reel that could mechanically unravel the cocoon in one single nearly 1 kilometer long filament and if that already wasn't enough she invented the first silk loom that spun it into cloth another leizu story says that she was kicking back in the yellow emperor's magnificent garden and couldn't help but notice one day how the leaves of the mulberry trees seemed to be disappearing at an alarming rate and that led her to go check this situation out personally. And from this observation, it led her to discover the worms, the cocoons, and the whole metamorphosis thing. And again, if you could sort out how it works from the worm to the unraveling of the cocoon, the rest is easy. So, Lei Zhu, she is, well, I guess you could call her the Shannong of silk, or perhaps we should call Shannong the Lei Zhu of tea. The silkworm goddess, she's given credit for the whole shebang, noticing the cocoons, how to unravel them, how to turn the filaments into thread, and how to turn that into garments and other useful items. So said Kong Fuzi. and if he said it, it had to be true. I happen to know a distant ancestor of Lei She lives in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I have to give a shout out to Carol for inspiring me to Dust off this topic and turn it into an episode, finally. So we can say, with a high degree of certainty, based on archaeological evidence, that at least 5,600 years ago, silk existed and was being used as a fabric. That meant that some smart person, living along the banks of the Yellow River back then, near some mulberry trees, presumably, somehow figured out how it all worked. This is really a great story of how amazing humankind is. Here's what either one person, or maybe it was a husband and wife team, or a group of people, we'll never know. But someone figured out. This one particular moth, the ancestor of what will one day be known as Bombix mori, emerged from these cocoons, and that these moths would lay something like 500 or 1,000 pinpoint-sized eggs and a hundred of them would only weigh one gram. The eggs hatched, they became larva, and in six weeks the larva became full-grown silkworms that had been feasting on mulberry leaves 24-7. And these tiny worms will grow and increase their weight 10,000 times before they start the next phase of their metamorphic process. And just like they had to do with tea as the centuries passed, these ancient Chinese figured out What were the optimum conditions to handle these eggs and worms? The temperature, humidity, how much light was required, and so on. The larger these silkworms became, the more they ate. You had to have a lot of leaves. 30,000 silkworms can eat one ton of mulberry leaves. I kid you not. And from all that, my friends, all you get is 12 pounds of raw silk. So this isn't just a few trees in the backyard. To feed these worms, you needed forests of these morris alba, or white mulberry trees. You know, in China today, there are 6,260 square kilometers of land solely dedicated to growing morris alba to support the silk industry. China's number one in the world. 6,260 square kilometers of mulberry trees. That's bigger than Delaware. Our first state. Plus, you could throw L.A. in there, too. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's Perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only guilloché master craftsman, Cheng Tsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you that's a t e l i e r w e n dot com to see their impressive collections the Atelier one perception watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine unique watches. This particular tree, the white mulberry morris alba, besides the leaves, has other uses in traditional Chinese medicine. The actual mulberries themselves are used to counter prematuring gray hair, constipation, and diabetes. The bark of the tree was used to treat coughs, wheezing, edema, fever, headache, and red eyes. And one other thing, if you're ever walking through the forests of India and you get bit by a Russell's Viper, that mulberry tree has a leaf extract that will get you out of that jam. Then these Yangshao farmers probably noticed that the worms, as they grew fat on these leaves, changed color, shed their outer skin three times, and again a fourth time inside the cocoon. But after that third time molting, a scientific process called ectasis, that meant it was time to start spinning that cocoon. Once these silkworms were big and fat with Plenty of energy stored up to carry out the whole metamorphic process. They really needed a lot of special attention. They have to be carefully shielded from wind, loud noises, pungent odors, and must be kept at a constant temperature. And then, when everything is ready, the show begins. Some jelly-like, viscous slime starts oozing out of a hole in their head, As soon as this goo comes in contact with the air, it starts to harden. Three, four days later of non-stop waving their head in this figure-eight pattern, back and forth, back and forth, these silkworms build this cocoon around them. And the amazing thing here is that they do this with one single unbroken strand, almost a kilometer long. And one other interesting thing... When that silkworm is squirting out that protein out of its head, a mixture of two substances called fibroin and sericin, the stuff exits through some kind of natural, triangular-shaped extrusion mold, so that when the liquid hardens upon making contact with the air, the strand is prism-shaped, so that when light hits the silken strands, they refract from different angles. And this gives silk its patented shimmering colors. That substance is a very long chain of repeating sequences of a few types of amino acids. The silk molecule is 400,000 amino acids long and quite extraordinary in its strength. If you let that pupa inside that cocoon turn into a moth, sooner or later they will break through the cocoon and there goes your one single kilometer long unbroken filament. So you had to kill that pupa before it did any damage inside the cocoon. Eight or nine days into the process, the cocoons are steamed or baked to kill the pupa. Then the cocoons are placed inside boiled water. They loosen up a little and begin to unravel. And there are tools that were created that helps find the loose end. And from each cocoon, The filament is unraveled and reeled onto a spool. The lucky few pupa that are allowed to live emerge from the cocoon, lay their eggs, and promptly die. Their job is done. You needed to twist together five to eight of these filaments to form the finest single thread of silk. Some heavier threads require 48 individual silk filaments then that thread is either woven into fabric or used for embroidery. There are about four main different kinds of silk thread, and depending on what you're trying to make, you use that thread. And from the earliest times, this is mentioned in both the Shi Ji and the Li Ji, the Records of the Grand Historian and the Book of Rites, in the parts of China that were conducive to silk making, Three generations of women in a single household would toil, side by side, tending silkworms, feeding them, unraveling them, spinning, weaving, dyeing, always women. And the deity Tzu, also a woman. And each year, the Empress of China, wife of the emperor, would perform a ceremony in the spring to kick off the silk-racing season. Yeah, silk-making was women's work part of the Nugong, the feminine arts. If the climate was right, farmers raised these silkworms themselves, and the products they made from the silk were used by themselves. There were no malls or department stores to go purchase these things. If you wanted to see your son wearing some silk garment at Chinese New Year, you had to make it yourself, and that included making the silk too. So some Clever, enterprising Chinese person living during the tail end of Yangshao culture over 5,000 years ago figured this all out. And as I said, the silk produced at first wasn't as high quality as what followed, but that didn't take terribly long to perfect. By the way, very recently, weeks ago from when I'm recording this episode, archaeologists in central Henan found evidence of these proteins in a couple of tombs excavated from 8,500 years ago. That's like 6,500 BCE. Now, there was no actual silk fabric recovered from the site, but they isolated one of these two silk proteins in the soil samples from the tomb. So, while there's no fire, there's sure a lot of smoke. So, the secrets of silk might have been revealed even long before what's presently considered silk's beginnings. In time, these silk brocades coming out of Suzhou, Nanjing, and Chengdu would astound the kings, queens, nobles, and highborn all living west of China. Remember Zhang Qian, CHP episode 47, one of my favorites? From 138 to 126 BCE, during the time of the Han Emperor Wu, Han Wu Di, Zhang Qian journeyed to parts of Central Asia, and among other things he discovered, he learned of other great civilizations on planet Earth besides the great and mighty Middle Kingdom. And back then, people in China thought they were the only advanced civilization. They didn't know about India, Rome, Persia. So we give credit to the Han Emperor Wu for seeing the big picture, and for championing the trade routes that in 1877 Baron Ferdinand von Reichthoven would call the Eidenstrassen the Silk Roads. It wasn't called the Silk Road way back when it was in use, but if not for silk, it's doubtful these ancient trade routes would be as famous as they are in our day. Just like the first ones to taste tea, the first ones who handled silk knew this was something special. And again, just like with tea, at first silk was reserved solely for royalty and later to other nobles. And once silk production reached a certain level of efficiency, pricing came down. And before long, the more vulgar parts of Chinese society could also afford to wear silk. But it was never cheap, and it wasn't everyday wear for many of the lower classes who could afford to buy it. Silk was always reserved for special occasions only, weddings, the spring festival, and other major holidays and events. The Chinese knew this material was special, and the same went with people who came from lands east and west of China. Silk was found in an Egyptian tomb excavated at the Valley of the Kings in Thebes that was dated to 1070 BCE. And that is about as far back in history as we can go to show proof of silk being traded, or at least carried to lands far away. But it was the Silk Road that provided the wherewithal to bring vast quantities of silk from the markets of China to other Central Asian markets that are today found throughout Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. Like a central hub, these cities... Tashkent, Samarkand, Bukhara, Merv would receive the silk, and from there it would be carried further south and west, where it ultimately ended up in Rome. Actual Romans and a Chinese wouldn't meet face-to-face until the time of Marcus Aurelius in the mid-2nd century. Silk joined these two civilizations together. The demand in Rome was insatiable, and only China had the goods. So in order to get this high-value but extremely light material from China to Rome, the Silk Roads emerged. And as I mentioned in that previous Silk Roads three-part series, it wasn't just silk and other precious commodities being traded. In all these Central Asian trading centers, there emerged the great cities where some of the smartest and most talented people from different lands in the known world would meet up and exchange ideas and knowledge and this... The whole process would act as a catalyst to speed up the dissemination of knowledge and culture, you know, which acted as a as a lubricant that hastened the ongoing development of humankind. Around the 4th century BCE, before Zhang Qian's adventure, the Greeks and Romans began mentioning this land called Ceres, or the Kingdom of Silk. And the first Chinese they either laid eyes on or heard about were referred to as the Silk people. I read that it was Marcus Crassus, during his disastrous governorship in Syria, who was the first Roman to get his hands on Silk. Whether or not that's true, I can't say, but certainly in the time of the late Roman Republic and into the time of Augustus, Silk became wildly popular in Rome. They knew it came from this place far away. Pliny the Elder wrote in the year 70, quote, Silk was obtained by removing the down from the leaves with the help of water. End quote. Virgil said that silk came from quote, fluff combed out of unknown Chinese leaves. End quote. These guys had no idea yet what silk was. The hand feel of the fabric is like nothing else. Of course, nowadays the great textile manufacturers of the world have produced all kinds of synthetics through the Amazing power of genomics, engineers and scientists have come up with ways to produce silk in bulk without the hassle of carrying out the whole silkworm and mulberry leaf chores. Silk filaments are five times stronger than steel in tensile strength, and three times tougher than Kevlar. It's one of the strongest fibers known to man or woman. And because of its low density, compared to other fabrics like wool or cotton, it's much more absorbent, being able to absorb as much as one-third its weight and moisture. Yeah, by reputation, it's the fabric that keeps you cool in the summer and warm in the winter. So tea, according to the ancient historical record, claims 2737 BCE as the time Shannong nong discovered it. And we know silk went back almost a thousand years earlier. And believe it or not, the Chinese people were able to hold on to the monopoly on silk for about 3,000 years. China was the only place from mythical times and into the beginnings of Chinese recorded history that had the process down and knew about the magic of the Bombix Mori and the Morus Alba. But like I said, the process of making silk didn't require the thousands of years it took for tea to go from bitter medicine to the tasty rock teas of the Wuyi Mountains. Pretty much as soon as people from other lands began to come to China, they got hooked up with silk merchants. And just prior to the Silk Roads and all throughout its early growth and its heyday, the countries to the west of China, no matter how expensive it was, the demand for silk was always high. And before those guys far to the west of China got to feel that fabric with their fingers for the first time, there were people closer to China who got to see it and feel it first. And these were, of course, China's neighbors to the east, Korea and Japan. They liked silk, too. Around the time of the founding of the Han Dynasty, Chinese migrants brought the secrets of silk-making to Korea, and before long, they developed their own sera culture. About 100 years later, around 300 AD, sericulture was well under development in India. And around the same time, in Japan, they too figured out the whole thing. There's also a story that says that in the year 440, the king of Khotan, that's present day He Tian in Xinjiang, he had won the hand of a Chinese princess. You know, details on how that came about. But this princess was informed by a representative of the king who told her if she was expecting to continue enjoying the pleasures of silk, she had better bring some with her. So as this legend went, this princess from China secreted some mulberry tree seeds and some silkworm eggs in her hairpiece and brought them to this great Silk Road trading center. And the people of Khotan launched their own sericulture industry, and protected their secret no less vigorously than the Chinese did. The next great leap in the spread of silk production happened in 550, when two Nestorian monks were sent on a mission to retrieve silkworm eggs, and in the hollow of their walking staffs, they brought them back and presented them to Emperor Justinian I at the court in Byzantium. They must have taken the Concord. And by the way, this time in China, basically the Jin dynasty up to maybe the Sui, this was a real great leap forward in China as far as taking the science of sericulture to a higher level of refinement. During the Tang and Song dynasties, Suzhou was the center of the silk trade in China. There was an old saying that said that the yardage of silk produced in Suzhou every two weeks could be used to pave the Silk Road from Chang'an to Rome. By the time of Qianlong in the Qing Dynasty, there were 12,000 silk looms in operation in Suzhou, employing over 100,000 workers and artisans. Chengdu, by the way, as far as the silk industry was concerned, was the Suzhou of the West. And by this time, when the indigenous Byzantine silk industry had ramped up and was operating at full capacity... World silk prices finally became low enough for more people to purchase and enjoy it. In Persia, they also loved Chinese silk. Within 200 years of the Kingdom of Khotan getting their silk industry up and running, the Persian textile masters too threw their hat in the ring. By the 7th century, the Arabs had wrestled the secrets of sericulture from the Persians and set up their own. Arab silk industry, by the 10th century, Andalusia in southern Spain was the center of the European silk trade. As I said, the whole science behind sericulture isn't that difficult to learn. By the time the secret had made its way to the Middle East, it didn't take long for everyone else to get in on it. So again, like tea, silk started off, because of its scarcity, as something enjoyed only by the royals and aristocrats. Then to the moneyed class, and finally, when prices came down low enough, it became more commonplace among urban and rural dwellers. And starting in the Han Dynasty, silk began to be used as a quasi-currency. Standards existed that determined how many yards of silk of a certain width roll would be worth, you know, a certain amount of gold or silver. Even foreign countries accepted silk as payment, Around 1147, during the Crusades, 2,000 skilled workers from the Byzantine silk industry took a ship from Constantinople to Italia, and there began the European continent's first silk industry. And once silk production landed in Italy, it was only a matter of time before anybody who could get into the business got into it. Some places rose higher in achievement and prominence in the industry than others. By the 15th century, Lyon became the center of the European silk trade. Francis I granted the city of Lyon a monopoly on silk trading. In the fourth arrondissement, La Croix-Rousse, is where it was centered. With so many cities producing silk, market prices fell. But if you had the money and only wanted the best quality... The most cutting-edge fabrics and brocades, you still had to buy from China. Those Chinese silk brocade designs, they loved them in all the great fashion capitals of Europe, and in all their colonies as well. There was just something about those Chinese designs that so attracted Western tastes. But she had to be loaded to afford them. And it wasn't just the popularity of the designs, it was the quality of the fabric. Nobody could do it like China. And today, well, the silk industry is so complex. And like tea, again, so many countries now produce it. There are synthetics now that can fool anyone except the experts. Despite all that, if you wanted the real thing, it still takes about 2,500 silkworms to yield you one pound of raw silk. That's been the bottleneck for 5,000 years. Silk, on average, is about 20 times the price of cotton today's worldwide production of silk is about 200,000 metric tons that's a lot of silkworms that's a lot of mulberry leaves but as big as that number seems of the overall total worldwide trade in textiles silk only makes up 0.2 percent of the total china is by far and away at about 80 percent the largest silk producer in the world India, at 10% market share, is a distant second, with Uzbekistan an even more distant third. Thailand is fourth, and Brazil, the only non-Asian major producer, is fifth. So that is going to be that, as far as my encapsulation of the history of silk into a single podcast episode. I guess now I'll have to do porcelain, since tea and silk are now behind me. I want to thank everyone who took my humble request to heart last episode and wrote me a stellar iTunes review. And thanks to all of you who didn't write me a review but gave me a five-star rating. Anyone else willing to help me out and get me to the top of the pops, if you live in an iOS world, go give me a nice review. So that's going to be it, ladies and gentlemen. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a nice wet, and wild Los Angeles, California. We got drenched these past few weeks, so you won't be hearing me signing off from any bone-dry locations. Join us again next time, if you're so inclined, for another informative and entertaining episode of the China History Podcast.